You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole. I am just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me as she is every single week, the one, the only, Christy Morris. How's it going, Christy? I'm here. I'm ready. I know we're really blessed to have a cool guest with us this week again, and uh, excited to see what we all think. Absolutely. Me too. Me too. Well, Nick, it is so great to have you back on the show here. Uh, It's been a while, but, um, you know, uh, I'm glad that uh, we finally got you back on to talk about, I think, something that's going to be a lot of fun to talk about with you. That's a big hype to live up to, but I'll do my best. I'm really happy to be back. um, And thank you guys for uh, waiting for me to uh, go over this one together. I'm really excited. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, but uh, before we get to what we're going to talk about today, which we're going to be talking about Alita Battle Angel, it's just actually come back into theaters uh, recently. So uh, this weekend it returned to theaters here. So um, we're going to be talking about that. But before we dive into talking about that, just want to remind you, you know, you can get us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Amazon Music, anywhere you get podcasts, you can find us. Make sure you're subscribed. Um, Christy and I want to say a huge thank you to everybody uh, because we had the largest month the 602 Clubs ever had last month with over 12,000 downloads, which is huge for us. So that's like almost double what we do every month. So thank you so much for listening and helping us out. We really appreciate it. And please keep coming back. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> let's do that uh, every month. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's let's repeat. Uh, so uh, you know you can help us you know, by sharing the show, following us over on Twitter at the six hundred two club. We're on Instagram at the six hundred two club tfm. Uh, of course, you can find us online at trek.fm slash contact, where you can send us an email. Of course, trek.fm, where you can find all of the shows we're doing. We're on. Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, as well as having the Babel Conference, which is a listeners-only discussion group for the entire network, and you can talk to listeners from all over the world about everything we've got going on in the network. A uh, huge thank you, too, to our associate producers, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millette, and Daniel Noah for making sure that the show keeps coming to you each and every week through their support on Patreon. Uh, honestly, guys, I can't tell you how important it is for us to have you as uh, Patreon supporters, uh, especially in this time. We absolutely need your help. Uh, there is no way that we can continue to do this network. And if we don't have the support, I, in, in all honesty, we won't be able to continue to network. So if you like what we do here, please go to patreon.com slash trek.fm and see how you can support the team. We would really appreciate it. There's some great contribution levels, but in the end, uh, honestly, every little bit helps. Uh, so again, that's patreon.com slash trek.fm. So Alita Battle Angel is originally from a manga uh, that uh, started in a uh, Japanese magazine called business jump in 1990 to 1995 um from yukito kirisho and 
became really, really popular. Uh, and it was, uh, they also did a two part anime movie, uh, titled Battle Angel. Um, and it was released here in North America as well as the UK and Australia. And so this is a series then, um, that kind of ended up though in development hell for a very long time once Guillermo del Toro kind of brought this to James Cameron's, uh, attention. And uh, he loved the idea, um, and yet uh, in in 2000, they actually registered a, a domain called BattleAngelAlita.com, uh, and then it goes through, well, Cameron's going to direct, is he not going to direct, is he going to direct, is he not going to direct, am I going to do uh, Avatar first, am I going to do this first, I mean, it goes on for years and years, uh, and so, uh, and we finally get to the fact that um, uh, Cameron's not going to direct. He decides to do Avatar first, uh, and uh, he also is having trouble with figuring out this script because his script is like 600 pages of notes as well as a 186-page script. Uh, So he brings on um, Robert Rodriguez uh, to help him and so i just thought that was really interesting though that this is a movie that is brought together by two filmmakers one robert rodriguez and the other james cameron and so um before we got started with anything else i I think it's really interesting those two working together because rodriguez definitely has a style you know with like if you've seen sin city or Mm -hmm. any of those things that he's done he definitely has a style on his own and james cameron i mean you watch a james cameron film you know it's a james cameron film so I wanted to ask you guys about that as we got into this. Do you do you feel like um, that when you watch this film, whose film do you feel this is? So for me, that's something that I feel like, especially after learning who worked on it together, makes it a little confusing for me. It, it feels like it's sort of an even split of the two styles where there's moments uh, that it feels like a spy or espionage kind of movie. And then there's other times that it feels like that large scope of something like Avatar or um, even like Blade Runner kind of thing. Um, so I think that that's kind of a weakness of the movie for me, at least, is it feels like a struggle between all these kinds of things together. Yeah, I I could not have said it better. Um I think in my opinion that's that's the the movie's unfortunately biggest flaw is what I see in it is a story by Jim Cameron, a direction by Robert Rodriguez, and the two shall never quite reconcile. <laughs> Right. Um, it's, it's a, and, and it's, there's nothing wrong with inherently with either. The problem is I'm not sure based on what I see that the two were really compatible and that it was a really good idea to try to marry the two. You have, um, you have a, a filmmaker on one end in Jim Cameron who, uh, tells nothing but huge stories, huge stories. And the reason why he can tell them in one movie when he does is because honestly, and I know he's a very polarizing director, but regardless of whether you love him or hate him, anybody I know who is objective will say he has a talent almost unparalleled to know exactly what to tell you, 
when to show it to you, how to show it to you, so to convey the maximum amount of story. And so he can fit a huge story in a two, two and a half hour movie. Um, but in Robert Rodriguez, you don't have that style of direction. It's not lesser or what is, it's just Rodriguez is more of a minimalist, like move very fast, you know, set up, scene, next, set up, scene, next. And I, it's going to sound like I'm critiquing him more than Cameron, but it's, it's not meant as a critique, but I, the more, the more of a thin story, and I don't say that in a bad way, the more of a, of a simple story Rodriguez deals with, the better his film, his, his film is. And so in my opinion, what I, when I see, when I, when I watch Alita is this kind of schizophrenic, it's, it's this constant, like attempt to reconcile the size of the story and the, the sort of like simplicity of Rodriguez's directing style. And the two, there are moments where it sort of meshes for a scene, for a couple of scenes, for five, 10 minutes, but then ultimately it never quite really gels into a groove. I keep having to readjust, 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 and that distracts me. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's what, that's how I built it. Yeah, no, I think both of you are making great points and something that was really interesting as I was, uh, you know, I, I've, I saw the movie when it first came out in the theaters and, and then, um, you know, it was really interesting to, uh, get the, uh, the actual film and then watch some of the behind the scenes extras, you know, and I, I had, I had heard about the, that Cameron had really, uh, you know, actually struggled himself to bring this to screen in the sense that he was having a lot of problems with the size of his own script like you were talking about nick you know he tends to work in these big things and part of that is i think you know um the the work from the original artist and creator it turned i think it's like 10 books if i remember correctly and then there's a lot of offshoots to that too so there's a ton of source material and i think one of the things that you see here is like they're trying to figure out how to tell a complete story but at the same time you can also see that this movie is wanting to be sequelized mm-hmm. uh, and so they're really struggling with that and i think that's what cameron struggled with like is how do i give you everything you need in the first movie and and maybe try and make it complete but at the same time leave it all the way open for sequels uh and and i think the biggest problem that I saw in the film was that Rodriguez did not make this his own movie. He was basically just trying to make a Jim Cameron movie and he shouldn't do that. He should make his own movie. He should make, I mean, yes, he's working with Cameron, but I, I I think he has too much respect for Cameron when he shouldn't in the sense that you need to make this your own film. And part of Rodriguez would be making this, I think a little bit more intimately and um, I think uh, there's not enough Rodriguez in the script, too. Um, yes, he he kind of cuts out a lot of things from Cameron, but one of the things I think that this movie needed uh, as well is Jim Cameron is not great with dialogue, and the dialogue in this movie is the thing that suffers the most to me because it's all super cheesy. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think, again, that's where Rodriguez should have come in and you could have kept the story points. But what he needed to do is is rewrite the script from his perspective, from his voice. And instead, what we get is a Jim Cameron voice 
Jim Cameron style like action set pieces with Rodriguez trying to fill in the middle some humanity, uh, you know, and and the characterization. And I just I to me, you know, that's the biggest part of the movie that doesn't allow it to ever transcend where you would want it to be, mm-hmm. you know. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that's the frustration that you have when you watch this movie. Because there's a lot of other things I think that kind of really work in the film. Um, but that's where I saw immediately as we're trying to bring this from manga to screen, the development hell that we end up in, they never quite figure figure it out. And I think it it it's it's played out, you know, with the reception this movie got. Um and um, you know, just uh just the general overall consensus that you saw kind of about the film. Sometimes that, you know, that general consensus can turn out to be right, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think that was one of the things you guys, I think just both nailed it. It's like, if you just never, you have to decide whose filmmakers film this is going to (laughs) be like, right. Yeah. Yeah. There, There seems to be globally a lack of commitment in the film on several levels. You know, there's a lack of commitment. You said, like you said, Matt, in the dialogue, I feel like, and you're right, you know, being a big Jim Cameron fan, his dialogue is exceptionally corny. But again, you know, usually it's exceptionally corny, but he, he does say the right thing. And he has this ability, partly with the actors he casts and the way he directs them, he gets them to deliver the line in a way which, as it hits, as you hear it, you know it's corny, but it works. It still delivers. It still lands. You know, I mean, if you look at the, some of the most iconic modern cinema lines are from his movies. And if you just say them or read them, they're super cheesy. But they work when, when that character, when, whether it's Sigourney Weaver or Arnold Schwarzenegger or whoever says it, it, it works. It tells you what you want to hear at that time. And... And again, it's not a question of skill. It's just that's the way he works. And and having other directors direct actors that he may not have cast and tell them, you know, have them read dialogue that is his style is not necessarily a good recipe. It's lack of commitment. Mm -hmm. I think there's also a lack of commitment in the storytelling or choosing, commit to choosing which story you want to tell. There's one of the many problems based on the size, and you can feel it, is that the story has been edited, whether it has been edited at the script phase or some of what was shot or maybe both. You can tell that they, they obviously took out and cut a lot, but also there's lack of commit in, in fully going that direction because they're still trying to tell too much story and more story than they really should or than they really need. There's at least in this movie three, if not four, movies that could all be really good this is to use the parallel star wars this is as if george tried to do new hope empire and return of the jedi all in one film right that's what it would look like you're you're and and at the same time like you said on top of that tell you enough story to also set up that there will be an episode seven eight nine you know and it's just like it's just there's so much information dump and exposition dump and at a stage where you're just doing the world building. And now I'll go back to new hope and compare that. And that's what they should have done. 
this movie would have been fantastic if it had been just basically the introduction of this character into this world. The, the, if you'd just made it the story about she wakes up, she discovers this father figure, they bond, you discover the world through their eyes. And then there's this murder story, which grows into who the murderer is. Is it her father? And the realization at the end of the film that no, actually he's a good guy who's trying to stop the murderer. And she, it ends with her kind of like realizing that she has these skills and maybe she's going to join him. This, you know, you can kind of have the beats of like, you know, a climax and some action and we stop the murderer. That would be enough. And it doesn't have to be this one. There's any of the other plots, you know, the sort of, um, rollerball like you know extreme sports that could be a, that could be a movie the political intrigue all of these could be you know a movie but to jam them all together in a two-hour package is just kind of cookie oh yeah it, i'm so glad that you said that too because i was gonna say i think that it's also setting yourself up for a difficult situation to decide before you've made the first movie that you want to make sequels I think that you need to focus on telling a compelling story in a good package for your first one and see how that does and not be because they even decided in naming this one that there were going to be future movies. That's why they did it. Alita colon battle angel, because then they could add a two or three or whatever. And it's automatically setting yourself up for possible failure because you're trying to squeeze, like you were saying, Nick too much into the first movie and betting that it does well and there will be more. Yeah. And it's such a big world. There's so much in it. Um, and, and, and that's the thing. I love the world. I love, there's a lot of ideas. They're not necessarily, you know, mind blowingly original, but they're cool. And their interpretation on some of, some of these more traditional sci-fi riffs is, is, is interesting. The production design is great. The aesthetic is great. The effects are great. A lot of the cast is great. There, there's a couple of choices that are, I think, not not the strongest. But um, overall, all these elements are there. And if you just if you just believed in the world enough to to say, okay, well, we just introduce people to this crazy, awesome, cool, you know, new world, and we just tell a simple enough story within that that we won't overload people and and the story will also act as kind of a of a vector no pun intended to kind of see some of the interesting parts of this world and get you engaged and wanting more that's all you need to do you know that's all you need to do and then people are going to say okay expand it just start the mythology now keep you know you can save the mars thing as a reveal for a further film you know to find out that she's actually from the enemy forces and all these things can come later at, at having her as this like Pinocchio who turns out to be a Terminator. That's enough. You know, that, that arc can easily fill two hours, if not more mm-hmm. um, and, and, and be its its own story. I, so you guys talking to, I love that you kind of have already gone to this idea of the world of Alita and I wanted to ask you, because of what you're mentioning with, you know, everything being so big, do you feel like, uh, you know, the the movie maybe needed a Lord of the Rings style prologue because there's so much story that that might have helped the film itself? If you can do a, f- you know, a seven minute prologue 
that you kind of introduce a lot of these ideas. So then the rest of the movie, you're telling the story of Alita instead of like, you know, and, and then you realize that her story obviously plays into a lot of the things you saw as you move forward, but you're not having to, like you mentioned Nick earlier, stopping with so much exposition. Um, do you, do you guys feel like maybe that would have helped free the filmmakers here to be, a, be able to tell a tighter story than inside the rest of the movie? You, you can, there might've been a way to do it personally as a storyteller, I would have leaned the opposite way as a storyteller. Actually, if, if you, if this was my story to tell, I would actually have cut out even what, what passes for a, a prologue now, which is the discovery of her body. I would have just opened the movie with her waking up in mm-hmm. that scene where she wakes up and I would have done it through her point of view. It's basically Pinocchio waking up, not having any idea what he is, where he is, who he is. You want to be with her. You want to relate to her. You want it to be, you want this to be her story. And if you're going to introduce a viewer to a brand new world, what better way to do it? This is like the born identity than, a, than the, having the main character be a blank slate themselves, because then you can just with minimal exposition, whatever they see is you receiving all that information. And I would have just kind of had that story be you know, more intimate, like you were saying earlier, Matt, and have it be discovering Geppetto, discovering the shop, discovering what's going on, and then then introduce a slightly bigger story, which is the whole murder thing and, and keep it to that. Um, and then, you know, later, I think you can start to kind of go into more more of the sci-fi mythology aspect of that world. But I would have done, I think, less than more personally. I'm glad that you mentioned the change in character perspective to Nick, because I think that I think it could work possibly either way, because there have been movies that I liked where they do a prologue like that at the beginning with text or something um, or even just, you know, quick visually. But I think that it's more of a struggle of they jump back and forth too much between whose perspective the story is from. We actually start from Geppetto's perspective and then it jumps to sometimes alita and sometimes her boyfriend or whatever you want to call him and you can't really tell whose story it's supposed to be even though the title is alita battle angel Mm -hmm. it's a very good point yeah i mean and like you said nick i think one of the strengths of the movie is the entering interestingness of the world because you know i think the whole idea of like this idea of this fall that takes place, it's a post-apocalyptic world. You know, you have like United Republics of Mars, which almost feels like uh, the expanse. You know, if you, you've seen that, um, that some of those ideas, these sky cities, cyborgs, you know, hunter warriors and this, you know, motorball. All of these things are, I think, some really fascinating things to play with. I, you know, for me, the, the reason I kind of thought of, um, of the prologue is just like, uh, you, I think you either have to do what you mentioned, Nick, which is you just have her wake up, uh, and then she starts discovering these things for herself completely, um, or you have to have prologue. 
Like you, you have one mm-hmm. or the other, because otherwise I feel like you get too slowed down in the movie later on with, with, you know, different, uh, issues with uh, just too much explanation and the problem is is again one of the strengths of the world of alita i think is the world of alita i i think mm-hmm. all of this this stuff is really fascinating i mean like even just the idea of we have a world where we've learned how to make cyborgs and everything um you have this one last sky city in zalem and yet the rest of the world is like basically empty now Mm -hmm. which is seems strange to me like that there's that you know in in 300 years that they've never like tried to expand at all or like so there's like so many questions i have immediately and i think it's so in i would i i feel like the problem is is that we never actually get to explore any of them enough for me to have any kind of real feeling of satisfaction when the movie ends like that i i have Mm -hmm. a a better understanding any one of these things. And there's like, what, seven of these big things that Mm -hmm. you want to explore and know more about. And I think that maybe is where my discontent kind of comes in with the movie because I'm so, I'm really fascinated by the world, but I don't feel like I'm really integrated enough into any one part of it, even by the end of the film. Yeah, I mean, and I think... If if you went back and retold that story, but simplified and, and you know sort of kept the first chapter, the first movie to one of those stories, you know, kept it simpler, you would also free up some of that time to more organically, as the characters go through that one plot, to address more of the questions you have, which don't get addressed at all because they have to, they have to squeeze so much of that real estate with all the multiple things that mm-hmm. they can't they can never really they can never really let you enjoy one aspect of that world of that society in a natural organic way because they just have to keep going 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 and like christy was saying the thing that also that also happens is as the speed of the movie and the speed of this kind of rotation of information increases they do an okay job at first at sort of like keeping up with kind of a rhythm where you're like okay it's like it's like a, like a b c a b c and then they start to trip themselves where all of a sudden it's like a d b z q a <laughs> d f and you're like okay yeah. and now i i don't you know we're going back and forth from different point of views different subplots and and you feel like it feels like just an hour went by between two big things at the same time as it feels like it's like a year that went by because mm-hmm. these huge these huge leaps in emotional investment take place I mean, within knowing this guy for 72 hours, she calls him dad and, and you can kind of get where they're trying to, to take you, but, but it just, it's jarring because it's, it's all over the place and it's too fast. And, um, so I think if, if you, if you had this sort of like simpler, one of those stories, you could do what you're, you were saying and, and just have more breathing room to let you appreciate one aspect of that society and then explore it deeper or another one in the following story. I will say though, to come back to your prologue idea. Yeah. I mean, I think if I let's, I'll put it this way to kind of side along with what you were saying. If, if you forced the hand of the writer and said, no, this movie has to cover all these plot points. That's when I think you're right. Like the prologue idea would be a good one because 
if you're gonna have to go through like really dump all this in info in this in the course of this feature yeah mm -hmm. then then front load some of it you know whether it's with a crawl or with a prologue or both or narration or all three you know just give like as much like preambule so that when you go in you can lighten up the load a little bit and not have to repeat it in the course of the film mm -hmm. but it, i'm glad that we all are on the same page with the world being the biggest strength here and that it's clear why del Toro recommended cameron to get this going in the first place and the you know the, the source material clearly has a lot of rich topics to cover and i like that it covers a topic that all of us are familiar with from other movies exploring um you know human repair through technology you know with amputations or things like that getting to have new life because of the advances in technology that's always something that we're going to be exploring in real life so why not continue to do it in film and you know reminds me of things like iRobot or uh, Wally even with the trash but it it just needed some paring down story-wise like you said Nick to then really allow you to invest more in the world yeah and I think um, it does it does visually a lot of great things I mean the iconography of the blending of human and cyborg uh, while not a new idea, the way they do it um, is really well done because it's also very accessible in a pop culture kind of way. Um, it, but without hitting you on the nose, um, it, it really speaks, um, rewatching it for, for this podcast, it really kind of hit me how well it speaks clearly and implicitly of this concept we, we are heading towards in our real world, which is we are going to integrate ourselves with the machine more and more. And I think this is the real AI is that I don't really believe in the kind of singularity, you know, her or, or, you know, um, that concept of like this, this machine that on its, on its own becomes self-aware. I think where it's going to happen is as, as the line gets blurred with where we end and where the computer begins or vice versa is where at some point you're going to have, machines that will have been enhanced with organic extensions people who will have been enhanced with electronic components and and then the two will intersect to a point where you won't be able to really tell which one is what was this a computer that on which were arms were grafted or was this a person that has microchips that help it you know be more efficient and 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 is that then two different type of life forms? And and this the movie in in does what sci-fi does at its best is that it speaks to all these these ideas, but where it actually does a lot of exposition kind of clunky in other parts. This it does very well, very visually, without ever it's just it feels very natural to their society, right? Where then their integration, you see that you see that whole spectrum. And it's just clearly communicated without having to hit you on the nose with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I, th I think that's one of the things that I was really struck by in this, you know, when we talk about the idea of cyborgs and one of the things that I came across that I thought was really uh, and somewhat disturbing in the movie is how dehumanizing it was for those that, that are living in this form. Um, because I was really interested to see the way in which like people already these days i feel like treat people as commodities you know 
to be exchanged and like bartered with and all these kind of things. Um, and we see that in a variety of different ways in our culture already. And here it, the people are just literally parts, you know, to be raided and stolen from. And like, mm-hmm. you know, like there's, there, we, the, the, those that are cyborgs, um, are, are kind of looked at as, is not necessarily as human, you know, like you, you literally, because you can just interchange parts, it's like, there is this dehumanization that's happened in some ways. And I was really struck by that. And, and honestly, it was quite disturbing to see people treated as, um, part machines, you know, uh, you know, for others. And, and, uh, you know, obviously that is what we kind of see, um, are quote unquote bad guys doing in the movie, right? But it seems really prevalent in this society too. So it, it's not just quote unquote the bad guys. It seems to be a, a something that we're seeing a lot of people do in this society um, because, you know, everybody's trying to make it to quote unquote solemn, you know. Uh, so uh, that's something that just really, I, I thought, again, there, there's some such interesting stuff to be discovered to hear and to be you know, like mind here when we're talking about like thematic elements and that one, that's one that even rewatching this now um, a couple of times for the podcast, it just really sticks out to me and it really bothers me. Like, I'm like, oh man, that's terrible. Is this truly where we're headed with the way we feel about people and the way we treat people? Like, I hope not, but you know, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised either. So Right. I I think that it's important that you brought that up, Matt, because I think that the core of why they include that, or maybe even why the original writer of the manga maybe had that in his story, would have been focusing on how much greed can take over. And that people, when that's their only goal, are willing to do whatever it takes, including things like that that dehumanize others um, to where their greed is the only thing they care about and they're willing to kill people or strip them for their parts or, you know, how it was even disturbing to hear people were taking someone's real organic arms off their body and then leaving them there to then hopefully get cyborg parts, but you didn't know if maybe you would just die waiting for them. So I, I guess I looked at it, though, in more of the light at the end of the tunnel, glass half full kind of way of they're saying, where can you continue to nurture the good parts of humanity so that those things don't happen? Or where are that there are always people that are willing to pick up the pieces and rebuild everything. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think you're both right. Um, I think also what I saw that kind of loops back to what I was saying earlier, I think that there's um, a perception there semi-conscious and also just because it's part of our cultural zeitgeist, including the people writing and making the film that we are slowly heading towards the world right, right now, at least, you know, the direction we're heading into is greater integration, you know, of the machine into us, us into the machine. Um, and so what you see there is kind of a natural projection of that in this, you know, very kind of poppy sci-fi way of, uh, a culture 
for which the body and the mind have become completely disconnected. There, there is no, there is no, like the body has no value, no relevance to the notion of being and identity. And so, you know, of course, and, 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 a, and if you're going to bring in ethics in that and, and morals, it, you know, then there's a big, there a lot of big conversations because it's like, well, that is also what allows you if, if, if the body mechanical or organic has no, no relevance in terms of value or identity, then yeah, it's easy to just say, there's, it doesn't matter if I have to just dismember you or do whatever or need, because it's just whatever you, it's just, it's just a piece of, it's just a piece of matter, you know, and, and there's no, again, it's a disconnect between what you are physically, um, is irrelevant to what you are as a person, as a being. Um, and, and so, you know, that, and, and again, kind of like, it's too bad because the movie is so crowded on the one hand, it's cool that it just shows you these things without hitting them, hitting you on the nose with, with it. But, but at the same time, it, it doesn't, I, I feel like it could actually, speak a little more to that question it's a really interesting question if not important um and it, it doesn't really it doesn't really have time to do that it kind of just glosses it just it just relegates that to the matter of like where it happens to move the plot along and that's about it well and i think there's a there's a place in the movie that's really interesting too is because on top of this we're actually seeing too um, the ways in which people are willing to um, sell out, you know, and to sell out anyone to get what they want, um, regardless of what it does to people, you know. Um, and so when you're willing to sell your soul to the devil to, you know, get back or to someplace you think is better or belong then um you're in a really dangerous place too and and again i think this really speaks to the uh what happens when we just treat our relationships with human beings as transactional things you know um when when all that is is relation when all that it is between people is transactional um it's so easy to then see to be able to take advantage of people because there's nothing more than them just being a stepping stone for you to get what you want, whether it's happiness or something else, you know? And so then that's something we really see uh, play out in the movie as well. And, you know, obviously with the character specifically, I think of uh, Dr. Sharin uh, and of course, Hugo really seeing that play out in those two characters where at the beginning of the movie, they're willing to do whatever it takes to get the Zalem and, um, and, and they don't care who they have to hurt, who honestly, they wouldn't care. Honestly, it seems like who they had to kill to get there, you know, that, so, um, the, the only, the only morality in this world really seems to be taking care of yourself, you know? Um, and I think, again, that's one of the things that makes this world really interesting is, you know, how, uh, who's going to win that battle, right? That's the age-old Star Wars question, you know, Nick? Like, 
is it are you are we going to follow the selfish life or the selfless life you know so i thought you know that's a really that's one of the things again where the movie has some great things that it really has set up um but as we talked about you know we're, we're just we've got so much going on you're never able to fully focus or fully flesh out any one of the themes well enough Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then we could, we could, perhaps that's one of the more interesting, you know, ways that you can kind of treat this film is that there, there's any number of, of a dozen or two dozen things that you can spend a lot of time kind of speculating and, and, and extrapolating, doing kind of headcanon, you know, development and, and expansion from what we have that would be, that could be awesome. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things about the character of Alita herself, which, which are really cool. Um, you know, same thing like that are kind of barely there. These seeds are planted and, and, and you see like, um, to stay with the Star Wars parallel, there's kind of this Anakin quality to her. You know, she's someone who is very spontaneous, very, very eager. And, and you see both, both sides, just like in a character like, like, like Anakin, you know, um, you see the dark side and the light side. You know, she's someone who will not hesitate to literally take her heart out and say, knowing that it's the most valuable thing, not just to her, but a priceless thing, say, just use it for, for whatever petty reason you need it, you know. Um, but she's also someone who relishes the same kind of impulsive, impulsive pleasure to fight and to hurt. I, I was really struck when I rewatched the movie that when she, when she kills Vector at the end, she has no reason to kill him. She is, she is literally impaling him to try to cut. I mean, she knows it's not going to kill Nova either, but it's kind of a petty thing to do to, to sort of like flick Nova in the face. And she's just, I mean, obviously this guy would not hesitate to kill her if the chances were, were turned, but still she, she is, she's, it's that same kind of impulse she has. And it kind of ties into what her, her, you know, father figure um, tells her that you have to be careful. You, you have, you know, this very impulsive nature and, and, some some things are better or left, you know, you don't necessarily need to go back and, and revisit those aspects of, of your nature. And and all these are things that, that would be really interesting to explore. But again, we fall back on the same thing. We never quite have enough time to invest into developing and cultivating any of these ideas. They're just kind of seated and we kind of see a little bit of that and it kind of is cool for a few minutes. And then we have to butterfly to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Yeah, I'm with you on that too. So, um, I think you know it, it is really interesting. I'd love to talk to you guys a little bit about the uh, the characters we have in the movie and the the cast because one of the things this movie does really have, I think, is which is fascinating, is quite a um, a good cast. I mean, you know, we've got um, people like Christoph Waltz and and yes. Jennifer Connelly and. Uh, Mahajala Ali, you know, all of these people are fantastic. And then, of course, you have our two younger leads uh, in Rosa Salazar and Keenan Johnson. And so um, how do you guys like what did you think of the cast? And, and was there any place where you felt like uh, any, you know, people do really well? Or was there any place where you were thinking, oh, man, I this doesn't quite work for me? 
I I enjoyed overall. I enjoyed the cast a lot, and overall, I think they're really strong. Um, I think Christoph Waltz and Jennifer Connelly are. I mean, they're phenomenal. Um, the moments where they don't shine well enough have nothing has have nothing to do with their performance, uh, as much as again, I think it's a question of pacing, and sometimes they have such a little nugget to try to convey a lot of information emotionally plot wise and so on that like it's hard for them to get a a really uh something that's really powerful but overall they're they're really strong uh salazar i think is really really good um she she despite the issues we've talked about she made me really enjoy the character of alita she made me care for her even even by the time I got kind of confused and kind of mildly irritated with the film for sort of like swinging me left and right and front and back, I still was able to, she captured me enough in the scenes she was in that I was with her in the emotion of that scene. There was, there was not the, the right transition for me to, to go, you know, to follow her organically. But in that scene, I was really with whatever she was um, uh, character-wise. Uh, Hugo... I thought was probably one of the weaker um, aspects of the cast for me. Um, I mean, the, the actor is, is, is fine, but there's nothing really stand out um, about him. And I feel like it's one of those cases where, like you were saying earlier, Matt, the dialogue for a lot of characters and especially for him is kind of not the, the deepest, most articulate, most real. And when you have that, what you want is either, either like a Ewan McGregor type guy who can say anything and have it sound good, or you want to have somebody who visually is going to bring something more interesting, more chemistry, like a Jack Nicholson, right. Who is like not necessarily the sexy young heartthrob, but has this kind of like really compels you, right? Or Christoph Waltz. This this guy is kind of more like feels to me more like a teen heartthrob, you know, guy with like the cute face and the cute hair curls. And I'm like, I don't really, you know, I don't really buy him in this world. I don't really buy him as this role. His dialogue doesn't help. He didn't write it. But then all of these things kind of like really just disengage me from him. Um, and, and there's a few of the, of the minor, you know, characters that are like that. But I think for, of the principles, he's sort of like the, the, weak, sport, the weak, uh, weak point for me. Yeah, I was the same. I think that out of all of the cast, which I mean, for one thing, I, I would agree it's kind of hard to stand up to someone like Christoph Waltz and Jennifer Connelly. But I think that Rosa really does it well. And I think that uh, Maharjala also um, does a good job. I think that it's just combined with the issues with the writing, like you were saying, Nick, and then also Kian being a little more green. It He just felt like it wasn't the right casting choice necessarily for that. And the writing didn't help with the dialogue. So I think that they possibly could have found somebody else that would still fit the bill as far as the kind of character they want um, and maybe had a little bit more acting chops to bring to it 
to even if there is bad dialogue to make it said in a different way that makes it more interesting or have some, uh, you know, actor that's more seasoned to bring something else to it. But I, I definitely was on board when I saw that Chris Huff Waltz was in this because I've loved him since I saw that first scene of Inglorious Bastards. I just was enthralled with him. He's so good at becoming whatever character he is cast for and in really giving some emotion to that and wrapping you in with whatever he's doing at the time. Um, and I, and I think that Rosa Salazar is really good in scenes with him together. You know, she, that really speaks to her acting for being able to bounce so well off of him and make you believe so much about her being like a daughter figure for him. Yeah, I agree with you. I I mean, obviously, this movie kind of falls on Rosa's shoulders, and I think uh, she is fantastic. You know, I think she does a really great job uh, with bringing this character to life. And, and, you know, it's great as, you know, she's not a really well-known actress or anything. And so this is just, she just gets to be her and really bring her personality to all of this. Um. Honestly, yeah, Kian is is the weakest link here. <laughs> I'm sorry, you are the weakest link. Goodbye. Um, <laughs> he's just not good in the role, um, and I don't know if it's a combination of the fact that the dialogue for him is not very good, or it's just I don't. There is an overacting quality that I feel in him, like he's trying to be so earnest and everything that it doesn't feel natural, you know. Like uh, like you said, Nick, what you need here is you need, like, the young Harrison Ford type, right? That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> and, 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 I mean, I, I was going to bring that up because, and, and honestly, that's also, I, I blame hugely casting directors nowadays because they always go for the pretty face, the pretty face, the pretty face, younger and prettier, younger and prettier, male or female, younger and prettier. It seems to be the order of the day. And it's, it's downright silly, and I'm 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 really kind of understating there. Um, and it and I was going to use the, the example of New Hope. And if you look at Harrison Ford, you kind of have a very similar, very similar character, the scoundrel, the lovable scoundrel, right? Harrison Ford is not an experienced actor at the time he's cast to be to be Han Solo, right? Um, but you you're on sort of the end run of this long standing. Um, strategy around casting that has nothing to do with pretty boy what's the youngest we can get away with you know it's basically it's more about like charisma Mm -hmm. it's for lack of a better term i mean you know going all the way back to bogart it's about charisma i mean humphrey bogart was not a sexy man right no, in terms of not. like looks <laughs> right but he's but he is a sexy man because he's the guy who would like commanded like he walked on the scene and you're like okay everybody pays attention right opening shot of temple of doom camera reveals indy walking down right and then like you're like staring at harrison ford's face because he's got and that's the that's the han solo that's what that character wants to be i know i'm cool Right. I know. I know I'm cooler than anybody in this room. I just believe it. Right. And so that's what you want. You want that guy who just owns it and projects it. And this, this, um, this character doesn't, doesn't have that. Yeah. And I meant to ask you both too, just as an aside, something that kind of 
came up for me, but maybe not necessarily anyone else, was it seemed a little weird to me that they were exploring having a organic human being guy fall in love with a 100% mechanical girl. And it just grossed me out. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, without assigning any judgment one way or another, again, to me, it's an interesting it's an interesting question to at least pose and have a conversation about as we move. And we already have versions of that. You know, I was just talking with my wife this morning about several articles I've read about the younger generation, even before COVID, um, kind of moving to a place, you know, like late, late teens and early 20s, where they feel like having online relationships, including sexual relationships, is to them a better, safer, cleaner um, alternative to real relationships because you, there's less ambiguity. All these things, which are again, I'm not saying good or bad. It's it's just fascinating because it's so. I already feel so old because I'm like I, I just it's like weird to me, and and so that's interesting because I'm like, wow, how 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 what kind of world do we live in where that that's thing? And then with COVID now, it's even more so, and so that's sort of like the sci-fi projection of that idea of like, yeah, like all of a sudden we have this kind of, it's not about sexuality anymore. It's not even about gender really, because these bodies are barely, you know, other than their faces, when they're fully cyborg, they're just arms and legs. That's really Mm -hmm. it. You know, the torsos are just wires. And so again, like it certainly is interesting conversationally and it's something there's like a very 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 small kind of brush of that question but in kind of a corny not good way corny um when right before she's about to go for the tryouts where she says oh do you think it's okay for a human to fall in love with a cyborg and and christoph waltz is like well why does the cyborg falling in love with a human and and there is something there because that that touches on a lot of stuff but they don't even it's not even they don't even deal with the tip of the iceberg. They're they kind of like, it's just like almost like throwaway lines. Mm-hmm. And you're like, guys, that that's like, that's a question. It's, it's worth having this addressed right in the story. And you know, it's like, it's like they're not even conscious that they have this big thing there that they could, they could deal with and they don't. Yeah. Like this huge existential question. Yeah. Right. right? It's, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge thing. Well, and I, I think one of the things that, um, they they don't really do in that in that way as well. Uh, honestly, Solo actually does a better job of that. I just rewatched Solo, uh, and um, when <laughs> Kira's like, "How would that work?" And, oh, right, with him and L three. L three's like, "It works," you know. And like, <laughs> that's actually a better job than what they kind of try and do here. And it's uh, it's very interesting um, because it is. It's kind of the same question. Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, I mean, that gets all the way down to, um, the fact that, you know, she is for, her, she is a, she is a human because her brain is still human and she's a girl and like her body responds to what she is. Right. Uh, and, and so it creates a, uh, the look of a woman's body you know so um it does seem like there's this this ability for them to like 
you know, that that, that would be uh, available to them. And, you know, even his friends make fun of the fact that he's in love with, quote, unquote, a hard body. So, uh, like, this, these are all things that are still possibilities. So, but I think it's just one more place where the movie, you know, when you're talking about just, like, thematic elements, it's just, like, there's too much going on. So, like you said, Nick, you just kind of th- put in a throwaway line and that's all you get. And so, and it's, it's, it's sad because, you know, one of the things that, um, I wanted to talk a little bit without you guys, because, you know, having seen this movie in the theater, like I was really struck by, uh, in the theater, the, that the, the effects in this movie and, and just the look and the feel in this movie, I think they do such a great job of, um, I really, I was really blown away in the theater by, um, the effects work for the most part. I think it's really good. And you know, it has, and I think it has just the right amount of almost like cartooniness to make it all work. Uh, you know, and so, um, yeah, that's one of the things here is like with the world building and the effects in this movie, I think both of those things are so great. It's just a lot of other things that just kind of unfortunately let you down and don't give you the opportunity to, to really, um, then I guess I think enjoy the rest of the movie the way that you would want to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you completely. I, uh, I love the visual effects. Um, I'm not usually, um, I don't want to say I'm not a fan of visual effects because I am. Um, they're a big part of why I wanted to get in this business, but I'm not a fan of movies that are about effects for the sake of effects, you know, where set, the set piece is supposed to be the selling point of the movie. Uh, I don't think that that ever created the best effects. Uh, but in this film, I feel like to the extent that they are spectacular, they do it well. And again, it's one of those, if, if you had stirred me in that direction, and I, I brought up the, ro- the rollerball um, comparison before, if you have made this more about this kind of you know rollerball-like extreme sport, and the fact that this sort of Pinocchio innocent character, but who has like this Terminator soul in her, finds herself trapped in or, or caught in that and, and chose to go more with that story because that's a vehicle for these some of these big set pieces, kind of in a, almost like this insane Hot Wheels um, competition. That would have been great. I, I feel like the set pieces are done really well. And... Um, that's sort of Michael Bay style action, but done, done the right way where it's big, it's huge, it's loud, but it's, it's shot clearly. It is spectacular. It is entertaining. And those moments, again, like when, when I got into those moments, it kind of brought me back to, as a teenager myself, the equivalent back in the late eighties that I really enjoyed because that's what it was. It was kind of fun robocop whatever you know style just big and fun and cool robots cool action um stakes that you believe in um and the world building visually is great the aesthetic the iconography none of it is mind-blowingly original but it's it's done extremely well and and um i think weta did a fantastic job um alita herself looks gorgeous the character um the animation, the the lighting and rendering on her body, um, all of that is is great. It's just kind of one of those one of those things where this 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 schizophrenia of like, 
oh, now it's just this really cool, simple action movie. Oh, no, now it's not. Um, oh, cool, I'm getting into this like awesome visual effects. Oh, but now it's actually trying to be like more deep and emotional. And so it just kind of becomes jarring in the end. Yeah, I will say when I first was introduced to this movie, the biggest thing that bothered me was not the effects overall. It was that although I knew this was an anime based movie, um, that the look of Alita's face just turned me off. And I know for some people that doesn't matter. And that's something they really like about this movie. And it's different. And you can see obviously where its its roots are, because in anime, most of the time, they're going to have those really large eyes with the, you know, like, watery look. Uh, But it just rubbed me the wrong way. I didn't like that. Um, And so initially, that was why I was hesitant to even watch the movie. But all of the scenery, I think, is beautiful. I think that generally the effects of it were, you know, like you were saying, Nick, especially with the lighting or how they were showing how her suit worked um, and how they were mixing together organic human parts with machine parts and things like that. It was really cool. And I think especially when they zoom out and show you, um, you know, like the sunset or sunrise over the world, it really reminded me a lot of Blade Runner and that more um, experimental filming style. Like I think you really see, especially the cinematography um, by Pope here, who worked on things like The Matrix and, um, you know, these other larger than life feeling films, I think is a big strength for this. And I think the most enjoyable part of it to me, it, it's just the jumping around story-wise and script-wise that really make it harder to watch. Yeah, I, I think uh, one thing that, it's funny because when I rewatched it, um, I, I first saw it in theaters too, and when I rewatched it, at first, I mean, I knew the real reason, for, like you said, Christy, for her for her look was kind of because that's the anime thing to do. But then I was like, I, I kept going, oh, you know, I get that. That's fine. But it's weird that she would be the only one like that mm-hmm. in this, in, you know, of all the characters. Um, and that just, that just is dissonant. Then we got to the flashbacks, uh, which I, I mean, I knew they were in there, but I'd forgotten the exact nature of the content. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay. So you're, you're telling me now you're, retroactively explaining it by by saying that the martians basically are the ones who look like that like those 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 battle angels you know Mm -hmm. those those cyborgs and they all look like that which i was like okay um i get that that that's that's a cool way to set it up but again to matt's earlier point I feel like that is a bit of information which either i need to have front loaded in a way which so that I don't spend 45 minutes wondering why she's the only one looking like that in a bad way. Cause it's not, it's not a mystery that, that, you know, um, feels intentional. Um, or you need to kind of, if you don't want to reveal it, you need to sort of have something that doesn't trigger this kind of weird standoffish, like, well, that, that is, that's, what's going on here? Why am I looking at this character like this? Um, you know, and, and I feel like they, they, they kind of miss, missed the, missed the boat there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's something that for me, uh, I mean, uh, 
I'm I'm in a different place than than either of y'all in that. I, it doesn't bother me at all. Uh, you know, um, I I think it's uh, in some ways to me. Uh, she has an aesthetically pleasing face. You know, I think they still found a way to make it beautiful, um, even though it is different. Um, and then, like you said, Nick, um, to come in later on and learn that the reason that she looks like that is because the erm. Uh, these are genetically engineered human beings, you know, uh, they, their, their whole, uh, existence is, is, <laughs> is made, uh, to be a battle person, you know, uh, and in, mm-hmm. in an army. Um, so the, yeah, so that part I never really has bothered me at all, but I mean, I can get why other people, you know, it just, it doesn't work, you know? So, um, and I do think, yeah, it didn't. Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Matt. No, I'm just gonna say I do. I, I do think though that Christy really does have a valid point, and so do you. In that, like, just this is another place where it does feel like the way we get information in the movie just would be helped maybe by uh, restructuring some of that uh, completely, or giving us a prologue or something like. It, I think. Ed, because if you can kind of put people's mind at ease with the difference in the look and the why, um, you know, that, that's a, that's a great way then to, to like, basically you deal with something and you, and then you don't have to worry about it the rest of the film, you know? So, yeah, I totally agree. I think, I think it didn't like you, I wasn't aesthetically, it's fine. I mean, I know what you were saying, Chrissy, um, obviously it bugged you and I, I've, there, I, I remember hearing that when the movie came out, some people were like, even if they knew that it was because of the anime reference, they were like, well, it's just too distracting. It it didn't bother me. That That's totally fine. Like you were saying Matt. I, you know, it, they made it work in world for me. Um, but it's one of those things where I do feel like it's distracting to the extent that it's not that, that visually it doesn't work for me, but it feels like it's so singled out. She's so unique that there's something about that, that 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 feels out of place. And this is one of those where if you don't have either, like you said, you kind of have a, a whole thing that kind of front loads what she is, or that is actually a place where you want to have the classic kind of George throwaway line where, and you, you have the perfect place for it. When he's putting it together, when putting her together, you know, before she wakes up, there's a scene where like, you know, he's inspecting her to make sure she's okay. And, and his assistant goes something like, her eyes look i've never seen anything like it there's no one like this and he says yeah she you know she look at she's able she has like a hundred times more photoreceptors than we do she can see 60 miles away and then all of a sudden you that, that's it all you need is to have that page seven thing that tells the viewer this is a thing that the people in our world accept and then that's it after that you're fine you're like okay i've been told what it is and why it is like that mm-hmm. so i'm okay with it yeah. Real quickly before we ask your ratings, um, obviously this is a movie that uh, has kind of created a, a following to it and, and people have been asking uh, in some ways like Solo, you know, make Solo 2 happen. Um, the Battle Angel Army uh, would like to see another one of these films because obviously this movie leaves it wide open that, you know, her her goal is to get to Zalem and finish her mission uh, because Zalem is basically holding the world back from moving forward so would you guys want to see it a sequel to this at all 
Yeah, uh, I I would I would love to see a sequel. I mean, you know, this movie is flawed, but it does harken back, uh, as I said, to a lot of things I loved about movies that I um, consumed growing up, um, and a lot of them were were very flawed too. And I think that you don't want to take it too seriously either. Um, I think that. Um, there is an aspect to the film that has, even though it kind of, it stumbles, um, but it, it does pull off enough of this kind of the genuine excitement of a really interesting world and this kind of mm, don't take it too seriously fun action uh, with enough depth that it's just, it's not also mindless entertainment and and i do think that it i'm happy that it has a cult following i i'm not a cult fan of of the movie but you know like dread is one for me that i am and i would love to have a sequel of that and it's it's one of those films which when i saw that i was like wow this brings me back to 1987 i feel like i'm watching one of those movies that you know that were done for you know at the time whatever a couple million dollars and it's a it's it becomes this cult sci-fi thing and and so yeah i'm all i'm all for it um not to mention that it's an opportunity to have a new franchise a new ip something that that is that is its own thing um so i i'd love to for it to go on and you know eventually if you have two three attempts and, and each fail sure at some point you want to say okay call it quits guys but I think there's enough in there that I, I wouldn't say no, just, just sew it up, throw it in the river and let's be done with it. <laughs> That's a funny way of referring to it. I, I, I guess I would say I'm on the fence about it because if they could pare it down to a couple of key takeaways rather than trying to cram so much in, I would be interested in seeing more of the story and seeing her showdown uh, in Zalem. I think that, I'll, if they don't do that though, and they're just going after the cash grab of more movies, that I'm I wouldn't be as interested in seeing sequels. So if they can do it well, yes. If not, then I'm okay with one movie. Yeah, I mean I, you're totally right, Christine. It really depends on who whose lap it lands in, and I think it you know it can go either way. These things in our industry are, are like really it's it's a toss of the coin. But I feel like a good example for me of, of what can happen when it, when it, the coin lands on the right side is planet of the apes. Yeah, uh, when absolutely. I saw the first, the first of those new movies, I was very much on the fence. I love the franchise. I wanted to like it. There was likely that there was enough in it that I was like, okay, you know, I can appreciate what it tries to do in some ways it succeeds, but it's to me, it was very flawed in a lot of ways. And I wasn't sure. I was like, okay, this is kind of like take it or leave it. I'm not sure that I want them to do more. And then this is what can happen sometimes when, because this is kind of the, the reception that the movie had where it was successful enough that a studio might be interested, but it wasn't such a breakout success that they're going to put a lot of pressure and, and almost invariably it's going to be somebody else because it's not successful enough that they're going to say, well, we got to get this guy back. So then it lands into another director who has more freedom because the studio doesn't care about it enough anymore to really ride, ride him to do what they want. And all of a sudden you see the second movie come out and it's, it's just like, okay, this guy gets what the IP is, gets what the franchise is, 
got what the first movie was trying to do, took what he needed out of that to, so that he respects it, but then went completely in the right direction and then elevated the whole thing hundredfold. And I feel like this is what could happen, you know, if the stars lined up is you have an IP that the studio says, okay, we need a tentpole. What can we do? And someone says, how about this? We have this, we own this. Um, and then somebody says, cool. Well, the first movie didn't do so great. So let's not spend a lot of money and let's just see what a guy does with it. And then you give it to a talented director and all of a sudden a year and a half later, you have a movie that uses the best of all these things we talked about, but is much more focused because he's kind of left alone to do his thing. Doesn't have to do Cameron's bidding or a studio's bidding. And then you have a great, yeah. a great film. That's kind of like the glass, the glass half full scenario, you know, to, to use your expression. So, I mean, I, I think you both have kind of said all the things that I would say. I, I would say I'm personally more interested in seeing this than I am any more Avatar films, which I could care less about because to me, mm -hmm. like Avatar is a one and done. Uh, and so yeah. um, mainly because, well, it, we could go into that and it would take me 20 minutes of a rant <laughs> on, on why that movie's not good. Uh, anyway, so let's not do that. And um, so, guys, uh, what would you rate Alita Battle Angel? So I think ultimately for me, you both definitely helped me see some things that raise my score a little bit, which are that the scope of it is interesting overall and the visual piece of it is so nice to look at and and i do think would be cool to see in the theater for that reason so i ultimately though because of the issues with the story being too big to squeeze into here um and a couple of the other things we mentioned i give it a two out of five uh because there are just some things i really wish could have been different but still some enjoyable pieces to it i'm gonna scale it on the on uh, scale of one to 10, because mm -hmm. I feel like it's nuanced enough that I have to, um, you know, there, there are aspects uh, of the story of the visuals, as we've discussed that I would rate, um, you know, as far as seven or eight, but then there are other aspects which really knock it back down that I would rate. And if I, if we were to dissect and give individual grades more like a three or a four. Um, and so overall, uh, I would give it like a five and a half on a scale of one to 10. Um, passing grade because, because it's something I feel is worthy enough that I, I would, I wouldn't want it to fail and die. Um, but barely passing grade because, um, there's a lot of room for improvement. Um, and I would call it, um, I don't know. I'm hesitant between a worthy failure or a deeply flawed success <laughs> somewhere between the two. I get that. Yeah. I think for me, you know, I was looking at my letterbox score and I think after uh, rewatching this and, and talking about it with y'all, um, the, cause having seen it now, I saw it in the theater and I've seen it a couple of times since I, I bought it to watch it for, for this. Um, and I, I think my, my, my final rating for the film would probably be, uh, three out of five because I think it's above average, but I think it's just above average. And part of that is because there's so much stuff that is interesting. It's fun to look at and all those kind of things. Um, I think 
the the problem is is that it's just above average um and that's not enough um to to make me like say like oh you somebody should have run out and get this i mean honestly right now it's in the theater uh and uh the theaters are showing it i think for five bucks you know so if you can go to the theater and see it you know it's not a bad movie to go and check out and enjoy you know so that's that's where I would recommend it for five bucks. Yeah, you can even you could barely rent it for five bucks. You know, right. so uh, if you got a theater open near you and go go see it, yeah, great. Um, but uh, and and like we t- talked about, you know, it's interesting enough to where if the right sequel comes along with the right director, uh, I think it could be great. You know, uh, so. Um, I think what needs to happen is people need to stop trying to make a Jim Cameron movie and make their own movie, though. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is um, this is a movie that, you know, admittedly, Cameron had a really hard time breaking it sound himself. Uh, and somebody needs to come in that ha- with absolute love for the material. Uh, and uh, like you said, Nick, um, even though I loved the first new Planet of the Apes movies, you know, Matt Reeves comes in and he just like takes it to a whole other level. You didn't think it could go right. So, or heck, you know, does the same thing with the Blade Runner 2049. You didn't think somebody could make a better film than Blade Runner, uh, that cult classic, but then he comes in and just kills it, you know? And so, um, absolutely. That's what we want to see. So yeah, I I'm right there with both of you guys in the end, you know, this is, um, this is something to where I think it's, it doesn't deserve a bad reputation, but it deserves a reputation that maybe could hopefully get it, um, you know, a- enough to, for somebody to give it a second go. So, um, but yeah, this has been like super fun and I'm really glad we got a chance to talk about it together. You know, uh, it's been something I've been thinking about for a while of wanting to, to do just because of the fact that it's kind of become this cult classic. And of course it returned to the theaters, uh, now. So, but, uh, you know, uh, Nick, if, uh, anybody maybe wants to catch up with you and see where they, uh, talk to you, is there anywhere that they can do that on social media at all? Um, they can find me on Facebook. Uh, I keep a very light digital footprint these days, especially these days. <laughs> um, but uh, but I am on Facebook every now and then. Uh, I check it and I, I'll you know pipe in here and there. So they can find me um, under my own name there. That's that's about it. I, I'm kind of off of the other platforms. You mean you don't run your own movie review podcast? <laughs> you know that's just because. That's because I'm, I'm, it, that's editing laziness <laughs> because I spend, because I spend 10 to 14 hours a day editing. I've, I've actually wanted, I have like so many ideas about podcasts and every time I'm like, Oh, Oh, Oh. And then I think about the editing and I'm like, Oh, never mind. Like I do it all day. I don't want to do it again at home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just have you on here, Nick, and you can talk about films with us and you know, uh, then you don't have Anytime. to edit. I mean, I. Yeah, if you want to throw a cot, I'm happy to be there. (laughs) Christy, where can everybody catch up with you? You can find me on Facebook, of course. I jump in the Babel Conference whenever I can. And I am also on Instagram and Twitter at Bell. And then when I'm not on the 602 Club with Matt, I have a show with my friend Teresa Delgado called Sabres and Spells. And we are going to be covering, of course... 
season two of Mandalorian now. So I hope you'll check us out there on the Skynet, Skywalking Through Neverland Network. And I also recently, speaking of Dread, you mentioned earlier, Nick, uh, I recently guest appeared on a show called Couch Potato Theater on the Fandom Podcast Network, reviewing Dread. Which was I have I have to check it out. I love that yeah, movie. I love that was that my movie. choice. They asked me what I wanted to talk about, and I said I want to talk about this one. That's awesome. So, All right, I'm going to go check awesome. it out. Thanks. Uh, well, <laughs> you can find you me. can never go wrong with Carl Urban. You can never exactly. go wrong with Carl Urban. This is this is true. Carl Urban is the best. Uh, he's the best. Um, and if anybody gets that reference, uh, tweet me at mattrushing02. You can also find me on Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero under that same name. Uh, you can also find me here on the network doing Literary Tracks and the Orb with Chris Jones. Literary Tracks is about the books and comics of Star Trek, and the Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Um, I'm over on the Nerd Party Network doing two shows. One is called Aggressive Negotiations, doing that with John Mills. It's a Star Wars podcast, and each and every week we dive into Star Wars. Uh, and we recently just did every single Mandalorian episode as a commentary, so you can check that out for the first season. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can also find me doing Outpost with Drea Kaufman as we talk about Harry Potter one chapter at a time. But, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now you're here. <laughs> <laughs>